0: You're about to listen to an episode of You The People. That's right, it's our American podcast that we've finally made, and now it's on the Strategist feed, but it won't be forever, so make sure you go and subscribe to You The People on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever other garbage podcast app that you use. Let me tell you about You, the People for a second. It's pretty much me being excellent like always. It's Steven trying to find his legs halfway through the episode and kind of failing to do so by the end. Uh, and it's Corey underperforming but being really boastful about it. So it's pretty much The Strategist Podcast but in American form. So make sure you go subscribe to You, the People wherever you get your podcast. And for now, enjoy this episode of You, the People. This is you, the people. Each week, us three Canadians talk about you, the people, your politics, your political system, and yes, your upcoming election. And with me, as always, Corey Hogan and Stephen Carter. Guys, how's it going?
1: It's going really well. I've enjoyed uh, this evening so far. Everything's unfolding <laughs> just the way I'd hoped to it would. I'm
2: well, very excited about this episode. I've got two beers in front of me, and I intend to take a drink every time Stephen Carter says Kamala wrong." in oh, the last yeah. hour.
1: You know what? We We refer to the candidates... As Biden, Trump, Pence, and Harris, so uh, we're not going to create a new rule uh, for a vice presidential candidate just because she happens to be a female. She will be referred to by her last name.
0: And when? What's her first name? Just for the record.
1: That's really not important. What's important <laughs> okay. is so that I'm just
2: going to drink
0: to that one right now. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and can we also drink to any time? Uh- on this episode, Stephen says that uh, uh, political currency is money, uh, and that money one is time. political currency. I make
1: one I just one time. I just, and you guys I, are all over me.
0: I just want to be able to drink as a non-drinker. I will drink to when you say that, Stephen. Uh, and Corey's already drinking to that. I, don't, I, I said it, and he's drinking to it. Uh, but it's going to be an interesting week. Should we jump into the headlines? Well, I think we should. Let's do it. Let's jump into the headlines. Our first headline, Trump admits to opposing funding for postal service to block more voting by mail. You know, for a guy who is known to have a lot of mistruths, a lot of lies, he sometimes tells the truth a little bit too aggressively and directly. And I think this is one of those situations. Corey, what do you think of this by by Trump?
2: Yeah, he's he's like a Bond villain in the 60s. He's like, now let me tell you my plans. Uh, No, are you sure you don't want to wait until (laughs) my death seems more? No, 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 let's do it now. Uh, like, like he does this all the time. He he's, he's, um, he's unable to kind of even keep it like uh, the secret, I suppose. And I guess we should all feel very fortunate for that, uh, except for um, the fact that nobody seems to care when he says things like this. He still has a shockingly high level of support. Carter.
1: I just can't imagine, you know, uh, we've, we've had this normalized now where he says the inside parts outside and, and everybody hears that. and, and, now we just kind of walk past it, like of course that's what he's doing. We all know that's what he's doing. He's trying to to slow down the postal service so that people don't trust the mail-in votes. He's already said that's what he's going to do because that was the other thing he said. You know, the, the, he said that the election is going to be fair and he's we should try and postpone it. You know, this is the this, these things that he says need to be start being taken as honest and true and real, and we need to blow them up to the size of of their actual import um, because. This, you know, these things, trying to rig an election, trying to steal an election is a pretty bad thing to do under normal circumstances.
2: Corey? Well, they, he does this thing, and I don't know if it's intentional or accidental, but by just being so overt with his incredibly gross plans, I I think there's a, Big chunk of the population that says, "Well, there, there couldn't be anything wrong with it because he's not even trying to hide it." Mm-hmm. Uh, but just because he's going out and saying that he's going to you know, essentially commit a crime against democracy itself doesn't doesn't mean that's okay. <laughs> I, I guess I guess what you guys are saying is we need to start the Trump Truth Tracker.
0: It just tracks all the truths <laughs> that he says, and and things that he's actually done and executed upon the naked, uh, obvious Machiavellian nature and like the lack of subtlety to any of this is to your point, Corey. I think what makes it hilarious. Uh, speaking of lack of subtlety, I want to move it to our next headline. There's a lot to unpack on this one, so stay with me. Uh, Bernie Sanders. I'm going to say this again, just so you get it, okay? okay. Bernie Sanders, Endorsey, Cardi B, to critic Carol Baskin. Girl, you killed your goddamn husband. Now, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot. That's to That's like 2020 bingo. That's awesome. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, the headline had everything. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if uh, Birdie and Dorsey Cardi B is the is the part of the headline you want to focus on, if it's the fact that Cardi B is going after Carol Baskin from Netflix Tiger King fame, or if it's the fact that she is now uh, bringing up the meme of March back, which is the fact that Carol Baskin killed her husband. Corey, do you want to react to this, uh, or is the headline itself just too perfect to react uh, to? You know, Cardi
2: B's got a problem with Baskin's weak ass politics. You got to deal with that WAP wherever you can, man. God, I know what that means. I don't think Steven does. Uh,
0: Stephen, uh, any, any reaction to that headline?
1: Uh, I'm just saddened to know too much of that context already. Uh, not knowing the entire context of, of Corey's comment uh, actually brings me quite a bit of joy.
0: Uh, Corey, for your uh, entertainment pleasure, the sub headline was uh, Carol Baskin noted WAP critic. So, just so you know, (laughs) I'm not even joking. That was the sub-headline. And finally, our third headline. The United States calls for shower rules to be eased after Trump hair complaints. The U.S. government has proposed changing the definition (laughs) of a shower head to allow for increased water flow following complaints from President Donald Trump about his hair routine. Now... I think we could have stopped it at President Trump at shower. That's not what this story is about. It's actually about him wanting to redefine the water flow on a shower at again, The important election issues, t minus eighty five days or so. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think?
2: this is this is not the first time he's taken on uh, water flow in in bathrooms. You remember when he was talking about you've got these low flow toilets that that essentially don't don't flush anything. Like the, the insight it gives us into his bathroom routine is horrifying, <laughs> <laughs> and this really, really closely ties to the first point. He can't keep anything internal, man. Like like we know that that he's blocking toilets, he's cracking porcelain all over town. We know that he can't wash whatever's in his hair out of his hair because of these low flow shower heads. It's just crazy to me. It's great.
0: I think we've got an episode titled "Cracking Porcelain All Over Town." Carter, do you want to <laughs> do you want to react?
1: Oh, this is why the first headline gets no traction. I mean, you followed up with Tiger King and and Carol Baskin killed her husband. And then you finish with low flow uh, shower heads. These are the issues that the, the president feels comfortable tackling, not anything to do with health care, not anything to do with, uh, you know, election. You know, like th- This is just so stupid. This is. I mean there's not even votes to be won here is there a big showerhead lobby that i missed out on is there some sort of uprisings in the streets that are demanding higher flow showerheads how how is this a thing that we're dealing with um with less than three months to go in an, in an election cycle it's just beyond my oh we reacted with laughter guys this is not we're not setting ourselves up properly this is Ow we'll Unreal. keep
0: we'll keep good note of Trump and uh, showergate, both definitions of that as we go forward, because <laughs> we, of course, know that the Michael Cohen book is coming out, and the Cohen book uh, does have some intimate details uh, of not the showerhead variety. All right. Let's move it on to our first segment. Our first segment. You have your ticket. So guys, D- Joe Biden has selected his vice president. Uh, Stephen Carter, the full name of the vice presidential pick for Joe Biden, please, uh, just so the crowd and the audience is aware of of the full name of the senator from California that Joe Biden has selected.
1: Vice President nominee Harris. Yeah, right. Okay. Ed Harris or uh... <laughs> Kamala? What am I saying wrong? Kamala, right?
2: That's that's okay. It's not I bad. It's, it's
1: not... I read it. It's hard to read it. It's like comma and then add an LA. Like that doesn't make sense to me. So, that, but we that did makes a whole it worse. video. That, that I it.
2: Exactly
1: when that we did the it... whole how to say Nahid Nenchi video, I'm still saying it wrong. We did a whole video about it. I'm still saying it wrong. So, I'm not great with pronunciations. What do you want from me? Carter, let's... Well, Carter let's go to you
0: first. Uh, let's let's talk about the pick in in, in particular. Surprised? I mean, she was the front runner. She was who many expected. But what's your take on on what you heard uh, with the Joe Biden tweet uh, picking uh, Senator Harris?
1: Well, I, I thought that he was going to go towards Susan Rice. I, I thought that Susan Rice was really interesting. I mean, and let's be clear, that's not any cut on any on any level on Harris, because I think that she's a phenomenal pick. I think that the list of people that were presented uh, by the Biden campaign as, as their short list was phenomenal. I mean, I think that was the point of having the short list out there, was that there was a a long list of very capable women that could that can hold this role and I think that that's a, a message to the electorate in and of itself um, but I thought that Harris's background as a prosecutor in California was going to be uh, too much of a negative um, obviously that was weighed against uh, her her strength in debating her strength as, as a politician and um, her, her immigrant story as a, as a family of immigrants that that have come to the united states all of those things tell uh, a wonderful campaign story that that does dovetail nicely with with joe biden's inherent whiteness um you know that is i think going to be an interesting ticket um but i i was really surprised when uh trump responded to the the, the nomination so blandly by you know just kind of talking about her her lying and, and those types of things when he could have gone after her you know the, the the they could reach for the split in the black community around her her prosecutorial record i thought that that was more interesting but i i think there's really not much to criticize i i think that uh, she's a phenomenal candidate and ultimately um She's, you know, she she risks upstaging the top of the ticket a little bit, but uh, I think she also knows that she can, you know, how to play play the role. I think she's going to be great.
0: I want to I want to talk about the voltage uh, on the bottom of the ticket a little bit more, Carter. I think that's a very interesting point you bring up. But Corey, I want to get your initial reaction first to uh, Senator Harris as being Joe Biden's pick.
2: Well, in some ways, it's a safe pick, which seems like a remarkable thing to say for a a, a female candidate, who a black candidate, a, a you know a daughter of immigrants. But when you look at her political resume, it's quite a conventional political resume for a vice presidential candidate. She was the AG in California. She's a U.S. senator. She was a front runner in the. Um, in the democratic primary until she wasn't she certainly had her moment in the sun there Uh, strangely enough attacking joe biden is is the thing we we think most about when Mm -hmm. we think about that primary um and, and so in that sense it's it's quite conventional and i wonder if in a way that's almost not not the point like if he is going to make a pick that a large portion of america is going to see as bold simply because of who she is her demographics which i think it's unfortunate people like we're still in that world um, to have the the resume that who can compete, like who can say that's not qualified to be president of the United States. You can look at dozens of presidents who have had comparable or less resumes, including the current inhabitant of the Oval Office. Uh, I also thought it was interesting because she's the first person from a state west of Texas to ever appear on the Democratic ticket. Right. Mm. And, these, and the reason why that is, is because these states are never in play.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah
2: they are they're so solidly democratic that people don't look at them and say well if we want california's electoral votes we better pick someone from california so so you know biden did make the decision that he didn't need that and, and people argue all the time about how big of a bump you get from a vice presidential candidate right did kane help in in virginia debatable right but um but he he obviously made the calculation now that's not what I'm interested in i am I'm looking at this in an entirely different frame, and, and I think that what I get from her will carry me in other states and it it was less about geography. And so I say all of this because it was a fascinating almost case study in how American political thinking has changed so much. You don't think about assembling states anymore. you think about assembling these these cosmopolitan groups from from across the united states and and in that sense it was it was um. It was probably a bit of a watershed pick, too.
0: Uh, Carter, I want to pick up what Corey said, because there's several factors that go into picking a vice president. You know, Corey talked about demographics and identity, this cosmopolitan nature. We've talked about geography before. Which state can the Veep carry, right? That's been a big part of it. But it seems like the focal point, at least from reading the tea leaves with this pick, which goes to your point about the voltage at the bottom of the ticket, is someone who could actually step in to be president, right? Joe Biden and his age, the fact that this is perhaps going to be a one-term president should he be successful. What do you kind of make of that with Kamala Harris? Because obviously she becomes the VP pick, but there's almost a strategy that if she inhabits that that VP office, this is almost your heir apparent to, to take the throne and have an edge for 2024. So I think that component seems to be considered quite broadly, but I want to get your reaction to that.
1: Well, I think that, you know, there used to be a, a, a thought process around the vice presidency that it was it was just a, a vacant position um, you know the line in Hamilton uh, John Adams doesn't have a real job anyway uh, you know th- th- it just was they, they, they don't have any particular role there is no expectation that the uh, the fir- the vice president fulfill any role much the same as you know the first lady of the United States isn't expected to fulfill any specific role uh, so the role can be defined by the president and his or her vice president and With Biden choosing Harris, it looks like he's trying to model the relationship that Biden himself had with Obama. He was going to be he's going to be an actual vice president that has a role uh, beyond just waiting for the heartbeat of the president to stop. Um, So that that gives uh, gives us a real signal that this is going to be a working partnership as the. Uh, as they move forward, and and probably more so than the working partnership that we see between Trump and Pence. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Mike, you know, Vice President Pence was asked to be the um, the head of the healthcare task force into into COVID. Uh, have we seen anything from that? In the last few months, uh, he's he's the forgotten partner in in that White House, and uh, it would appear that uh, Harris is is going to be a bigger partner. And I, I wanted to just take a step back to and address something Corey said, which is the the idea that this is a safe choice. One of the things I've been looking hmm. at and thinking about a lot is because Biden said this. Early on, right, in the debates prior to him even being selected as the Democratic nominee, that he was going to choose a woman. This then shifted all the thinking and to the point where we can now actually say that a a, a visible minority, woman of color, woman, like, a, you know, all of these things, all these words put together that have never happened really before. I mean, all of that is now a safe choice. Right. Uh, a, a woman on the ticket has never been successful, uh, as a vice presidential presidential candidate or as as the top of the ticket with Hillary last time. Um, it's so a pretty small
2: set you're you're gathering from. It
1: there. Doesn't matter. It's still a, it's a small set, but it's still the set. The entire set has been has not been successful. So to be at a safe place, and I'm not arguing. I think this was the safest. You know, one of the safer choices. But I just think you know that the the discussion point that this is now a safe choice is is amazing to me.
2: Corey, do you want to react to that? Yeah, I think that's, in many ways, it makes me think if that wasn't just brilliant tactics by Biden, because you're right, he defined a universe. And over time, uh, the the centrist, uh, you know, f- uh, women of color became the safe choice. But, you know, that would not look like a safe choice in America and a lot of other contexts. Uh, it was not so long ago that Barack Obama seemed like an incredibly unlikely choice for president of the united states other thing i want to react to you said have we seen anything from the COVID task force uh yeah lots of COVID. so maybe they just misunderstood <laughs> what they're supposed to be doing there like uh, maybe pence is really good at his job he just doesn't know what his job is
0: so. cory i want to go back to you carter i know you want your itching to get in but but on this front cory you know when we talk about <coughs> safe choices we talk about it from the fact of where her politics lie on on that conventional spectrum you just called her a a, a centrist right so uh you know, do you feel like a pick like her perhaps alienates, further alienates the progressives of, of the Democratic Party who maybe were hoping for a Warren or someone in the mold of a Warren to to carry the the left flank rather than perhaps the cosmopolitan identity angle for the party?
2: Well, go ahead, Corey. Yeah, maybe. But I, I think that the calculation was made, and I have to trust it was made based on good data, that... Um, That the the left flank was animated regardless because of Donald Trump and the existential threat he has, uh, you know, created to America itself. You know, they're going to vote, I think, was the calculation. And really where there was going to be ground won or lost was in the middle, was with a a more of a, a centrist group. When you start talking about those Midwestern states that went for Trump last time. I'm sure Joe Biden was much more concerned with whether he could carry those than whether liberals in California were going to be upset. You know, frankly.
1: Well, and I think the liberals are taking uh, some pretty stru- significant strides forward in the in the way that they're knocking off uh, incumbent congressmen uh, and women in, in the in the Democratic primaries. Uh, that seems to be where the battles being fought. And won. and when you when you see the high profile, um, you know, liberal. Uh, Democrats uh, like AOC standing up, and, and they're just full-throatedly falling in behind uh, uh, Joe Biden and the ticket because um, they know that the party's moving to the left. They don't have to. They don't have to win every battle. Uh, there's a certain maturity and in intelligence that's developed over the last four years of the left because you're seeing um, more of that wing of the party get elected and have positions of power. So I think that they're. Uh, the primary objective right now is to defeat Trump. Um, you still see a few people talking about, you know, I can't, I can't fall behind. But it's, it's just, it's minuscule compared to uh, some of the the challenges that Hillary faced uh, only four short years ago.
0: Carter, I want to move on to talk about the schism that is present in 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 the Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris. Look at that, I even got it wrong. Your oh, wow. me. god damn it, Corey. are you it's gonna hard. drink? Please it's thank hard. you so much, yeah. you Senator go. Harris. Look at that. Uh, But I want to talk about that. But before I do, very quickly, I want to do a quick round with you guys. How would you be utilizing a, a vice president like her, who or a vice presidential pick like her who's got so much energy, comes in with a coalition and a base that she can attract in a COVID time? How would you be kind of utilizing her uh, and, and the advantage that she brings uh, to the ticket tactically? So Carter, maybe I go to you first. Would, would you want her to do more speeches than a conventional veep? Would you want her to do other stuff we've seen? She's already brought a fundraising bump to, to Biden 26 million dollars on that day, already brought a polling bump. How do you utilize her effectively?
1: Well, I think that she her her greatest tact her greatest strength might be her ability to just use that incredibly sharp mind and, and, and sharp tongue. She is very, very quick on her feet and has the capacity to just eviscerate people. Um, And I think she will get under Trump's skin like no one else. I'm a big proponent, as we've talked before, about the Lincoln Project and its audience of one, uh, of trying to find things that just annoy Trump and keep him off his game. Um, When you're responding to Trump, you've got real problems. But if you can jump in and own Trump uh, and get him to focus on your issues, he sounds like a moron. Uh, So. If If Harris is the attack dog uh, going after after Trump, everybody's talking about the debate against her and Pence. that's really the 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 non-issue. her attacking Trump every single day on his mediums of Twitter and and other social media platforms is going to be unbelievable. She will be she's highly memeable and she will be dominant on social media and it will drive Trump crazy um, given that there aren't going to be large, uh, campaign rallies. There's not going to be lots of in-person speeches. That strikes me as the highest and best use for her. Um, and yeah, she'll go to the the debate in October against Pence and just wipe the floor with him. Uh, but that won't matter nearly as much as what she'll do in the next 60 days of just keeping Trump off of his game. Coy,
2: how do you react to that? What do you think? Well, it, it's got me thinking so first of all she has some digital assets that Joe biden doesn't have mm-hmm. the, the k hive right the, these devoted yep, online yep. supporters that are that are going to be uh you know zealously uh, defending her and championing her online i I was thinking about though what what Steven just said here this this idea that uh, Harris is going to keep Trump off his game and I have we ever seen that? Have we ever seen a president fighting with the VP candidate? Because that's a fascinating notion to me—the idea that Trump is going to focus his energy down ticket, and Biden is just going to float above it. And and if that's the intentional strategy, I can see a lot of logic in that. Now, whether it, whether it will work long term, TBD. But um, it's really fascinating. I mean, if if they're looking to make the contest more. Trump Harris. I'm saying if the Biden campaign is because they think that there's a real advantage to that. Um, that that's a that's an intriguing strategy approach uh, that uh, that I think is is definitely worth watching.
0: So I now want to talk about the Republicans. How would you be going after Kamala Harris if you're the Republicans? It doesn't seem like the Donald Trump uh, birther strategy, which he unleashed today by. Throwing in the fact that, oh, I don't know if she's eligible to even be VP is the most effective one, but maybe you guys think it is. But if you're the Republicans right now, how would you be going after Harris? Would you be going after Harris? Is it just bait to be going after her and spending any of your useful oxygen with less than 90 days left going after her? And maybe Carter, I'll start with you first.
1: Well, I think that the the Republican strategy, the only strategy they have left is, is a fet- essentially voter suppression and trying to keep people from voting. And and there's a really interesting strategy with Harris around that. She, you know, digging up all the dirt on her and her prosecutorial record at the Black Lives Matter moment, there is an opportunity to kind of you know, take take the good and, and turn it against the perfection that is is expected. Harris is, is good. She's not perfect. She will have made mistakes uh, when she was AG in California. And that gives you the opportunity to uh, jump in and kind of divide and get people thinking that maybe she's not good enough. And because she's not good enough, maybe we won't go out and vote for that Biden guy. Um, that That model of kind of dividing into... Her strength, which would be probably be viewed as as uh, African American population, um, that if if you were able to s- markedly reduce voter turnout in that population because they no longer supported her, then that would be a very positive strategy. And I think that it's there. I think that that information is um, available, and that that you know lack of performance is there in the same way that it would have it would have haunted a Klobuchar. Um, so getting in there finding that and then reducing their overall turnout there's not much to be to be gained in trying to activate their base around harris i don't think that this she's a liar she's not truthful that stuff's not going to work but i do think that segmenting off groups of of the uh, visible minority populations to say that you know harris is isn't what they expect uh could be very successful
0: yeah, inconsistent with the Black Lives Matter movement, or at the at the worst, exactly. uh, inco- incompatible with it. Corey, do you think that's a useful strategy for the Trump campaign to to go after Kamala, or do you feel like there's other things that uh, that they could go after?
2: No, uh, you know, you mentioned. I, I think we do need to address this this birther's, uh accusation that was put out. This totally crazy. I'm not a lawyer. None of us are lawyers, but. I can still read a legal opinion, and it's black and white. If you are the child of anybody but a diplomat, and you're born in the United States, you're an American citizen. And she was born in the United States. She is an American citizen. The the particular immigrant status of her parents is, is totally irrelevant. But the idea that Newsweek published this tripe that suggests that, well, maybe her citizenship is in question is, is you said maybe, maybe you do think it's a successful strategy. I don't. But I actually think that this is... Um, this does bridge me to a point that I want to make, and that's that if the Republicans activate their base against Kamala Harris, they may find that they're going to bring out a lot of ugly, right? A lot of ugly. And that could turn off some suburban swing voters and some moderate voters in general who might start saying, oh, big time yikes. Like, I do not want to be on the same side as those people throwing those, you know, racial epithets and whatnot out there. So if I'm the Republicans, you obviously have to react to the VP pick. Um, but I am encouraging Trump not to take the bait. I'm saying let Pence deal with it. She's a vice presidential candidate. You don't fight with a vice presidential candidate. You fight with the pres- the presidential candidate. And um, and I would move off it in relatively short order. I don't think that Trump has anything to gain by fighting with her. I don't think the de- Republican Party as a whole has anything to gain by elevating the fight writ large. So so like this is this is the pick. But but move on. Like you have to respond to it, but move on.
0: I'm also going to move on to our next segment. You're on mute. Guys, the extended Zoom call known as the Democratic National Convention starts on Monday. And I wanted to talk about the reality <laughs> of... You get it now, right? You, uh, you're I on do. Mute. Very good. It was very good. Take me a minute. You're welcome. Yep. Uh, uh, it's, it's what I'm here for. Uh, my only value to this podcast. Guys, I want to talk about this Democratic National Convention because... It's not going to be like the ones uh, of, of yesteryear or of previous cycles. Uh, but I think I want to start here because we know that Political conventions in the past have given candidates a bump in the polls for a simple reason. They get this four day advertisement. Uh, We now have figured out that uh, the networks are going to cover one hour of each evening of the four nights from Monday to Thursday. They're going to cover the main speech that Biden gives traditionally on the last day of the convention. Uh, But perhaps we start here, and perhaps I start with you, Corey, which is what do you think the rules of political stagecraft that we've talked about conventionally in both Canada and the United States and the U.S. kind of being experts of filling in? In these conventional convention halls, having these massive roll calls, just this ceremony, pageantry, background, stagecraft. How does that? Clearly, it has changed. But a, what do you think the change has been? And b, how do you kind of reconcile it with our current moment uh, as the Democrats head into this convention next week?
2: Yeah. Well, I will say that it's obviously very different in that the medium is different. And as as good old Canadian boy Marshall McLuhan reminds us, the medium is the message here. And um. I guess here's the thing that the Democrats have to be careful about, and I'm sure they've given this a lot of thought, and I'm not breaking any minds over at the DNC, but everything's going to have to be very different. The speech is going to have to be very different than the normal acceptance speech. Imagine a normal acceptance speech, these big applause lines and this thunderous roar from the crowd. You don't have any of that. You don't have any of that. It's got to sound more like an address from the Oval Office where where you are speaking and you are poised and you are talking but there's a cadence that's entirely different right he won't have that crowd energy to feed off of it would be a mistake to try to recreate the conventional convention speech they've got to think about what's going to play in this medium and this medium has limitations i've talked about the lack of crowd being one of them but that's not the only one like the 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 whole sense of space is different on a quote unquote zoom call and obviously they can do video and they can make it look a little bit more polished and whatnot but but it's not, um, it's not going to come off the same way conventions have of days past. So in some ways, rather than making it look like a diminished version of 2016 or 2012 or 2008, they need to make it look more different if that makes mm. any sense. They, like, they've like got it's to sort its own
0: of, thing. Like, it's not even a convention. It's its own thing. Don't even put it
2: in the same family. It's its its own thing. Don't compare it to conventions of past. It's going to feel different. It's going to look different. It's going to seem different. So so that, that rolling out of the speeches and whatnot can be done, to, you know, in a, a different fashion. It can seem more like a constructed product, like a television show. That's the medium you're in now, and, and that's what you need to lean into. You can't... It, like Zoom, Zoom sucks for so many things. It sucks for a sense of networking. It sucks for a sense of energy. You're you're on mute. Line is very apt. Um, uh, there's a certain awkwardness to all of it, and it's it's very similar to just seeing a, like a live feed of a double ender or something. But like if if you're kind of cutting between, it's there's a reason we don't just do live theater yeah. on TV, right? I mean, yeah, unless you your Disney Plus, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hamilton notwithstanding, but That's you know true. it was. Uh, it, it just—it it's it doesn't quite work, and I don't think the Democrats want to try to make it work. You
0: know, Carter, you and I are, are big fans of, of comedy, and I, I want to bring up a, a, an analogy that Bill Burr made, which is that he would walk on stage performing at a theater of 1,200, 2,000 people— and he'd have multiple sets that he could do in his pocket. And depending on the energy and the feedback of the crowd that particular night, he could just go in one of several directions. He would just read the room with the vibe and say, Oh, this is this type of room tonight. They're a shit audience. I'm going to give them this sort of over the top material and pander to them uh, less than I would if they're a warmer audience or if they're an audience that had a little bit more of a chill vibe. And with Tokori's point, you get none of that feedback. And that is so important in the political speech making, too, because of course, as much of it is scripted, a lot of it you you kind of holds back certain cadence, certain you know delivery notes, certain even segments of the speech you per- perhaps reorganize in your mind, knowing the vibe that you're getting. With that all absent, what do you kind of make of what what Corey's mentioned here?
1: Well, the problem with political conventions is it's not like looking at the Bill Burr of comedy. Instead, it's looking at like the Jim- Jimmy Fallon of comedy with a group of shills in the audience who laugh at every yeah. joke that you've written, um, and and so uh it actually can be quite off putting when you're watching a normal convention watching and listening to the the shills in the audience the the 10,000 or 8,000 people wildly applauding about how spectacular the speech is and you're sitting at home kind of going well that well, that was an applause line like I don't, I'm not even sure I can understand that now I was listening to uh, David Pluff's excellent podcast and he interviewed uh, Stephanie Cutter who's in charge of of doing the Democratic National Convention and she said something that actually really concerned me and that was that they're 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 planning to put a lot of kind of every man in front of the I was going to bring uh, that front up. of back. the audience yeah and yeah. and you know i mean every man's not particularly entertaining uh every man <laughs> is 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 uh is scary as hell and you know that means they're gonna have to do a lot of production because every man getting up there um you're gonna have to do your casting quite well I, this this isn't a reality television show where you're gonna have uh 32 hours of of tape uh for every two or three minutes that you're gonna try and create right like this is a this is a relatively live show and even though they're doing pre-produced segments and they're doing short segments uh, there's still a high probability that in hours and hours of broadcasting there's going to be a lot of duds there's going to be a lot of things that we don't want to share and that we don't find uh, particularly interesting now i guess that's okay not every television not every line in every television show is the shareable line but you know cory you, you you made a a comment about there being an oval office address type of feel to it well there's a couple of different feels to the Oval Office address. One is the weekly radio address from the Oval Office that's kind of read by the president, and it kind of is hokey and, and, and sounds a little bit canned and, and isn't really that important. They don't put that much effort into it. And then there's the "a day that shall live in emf- infamy type of Oval Office address uh, where you're being judged against uh, some of the, the major moments in, in, in American history. And Joe Biden's got to try and find a way to be more like the latter, Uh, And less like the former. And, and that, I I don't know if I'd want to be that speechwriter. That's a tricky little devil to hit, because you're not getting that instant feedback, you're not getting that you don't have the crutch of, you know, Bill Burr is a great example, you know, Zane, he's got a crutch, he knows what he needs to go to if he's dying. And, and there's nothing that that the speechwriters will have that will just jump to the audience going crazy.
0: Corey, I want to rea- I want you to react to that, but also the everyman thing, you know, as, as, as three of us who've worked with politicians, as frustrating as they may be, when you put them in front of a camera, most of them, even the poorest ones, are better than the average everyman because I've had to record videos with everyday people and you're like, oh shit, I forgot how bad most people are or how nervous or how much stage fright or stunted they seem. So Corey, I want you to react to the everyman angle, perhaps from the fact that, you know, we often talk about in political strategy, people need to See themselves uh, in the stagecraft or in the candidates. That's not always a literal thing, is it? When they talk about seeing (laughs) people that are like themselves, quite literally. So I want you to pick up on that for a bit, and then talk about the second part that Carter mentioned here too.
2: Yeah, the the everyman component, I think, is in my uh, my personal bias is that's always the weakest moment of the convention when they bring up the speaker who's only tangentially related. Is not going to be the next. You know, senatorial candidate for Illinois or anything like that, but it's just some person who helps reinforce the narrative. Uh, and so I, I get the trick, right? It's essentially you're, you know, your you're using a person to to make real a problem. It's it's narrative. It's it's bringing down walls. It's allowing people to see a challenge through the eyes of somebody that they can relate to. And and in that sense, it's not like it's the craziest idea in the world to bring these people forward. So let's just let's just start there. But but you're right like when it comes to a particular level of entertainment and stagecraft it really does fall flat so you've got to have these moments be be manageable and quick and generally speaking they tend to be sandwiched between better speakers and short and i have no reason to believe they'll do anything different in this particular moment but but there is a difference right because we talked about how like being sandwiched between two barn burner speeches and being kind of crappy is a different feel than being sandwiched between two lectures, which is what there's the risk of this right, Zoom right, style. Right. Uh, like conference coming off as and it's really it's going to be tough like think about Barack Obama. He did this rhetorical trick very famous where as he started talking and the crowd started cheering, he didn't back off, he got louder and the crowd mm-hmm. got louder and oh, he yeah. got louder, right? And um Biden doesn't do that. Biden has a different one. Biden's this like now, now, my friends, now my fr- after he does a like that, he's like, no, but this is serious. Like, no, I need you to listen to this part. You're not going to believe this part, right? Like, yeah. almost like he's like, that was all fun, the, but now we're going to go do this. Quick
0: headline. <laughs> now I've got oh, the- no, yeah,
2: it, yeah. But it's his, it's his signature. But it's his shtick. But that shtick is not going to work in this particular moment, right? So th- their normal crutches will fail them. And, um, and so they're not going to be able to help okay i guess i'll put it a different way it's like a wedding MC. sometimes you have a bad speech and the wedding MC's job is to kind of bring the crowd back up before you hand it off to the next speaker right uh, you're not going to have that bag of tricks available to you so what they're trying to do by introducing more everyman components is in my opinion very dangerous at least from like a tune in perspective you know the, the desire to actually watch it so i think they have to be quite careful I want to talk about,
0: very quickly, focal point before I go into what I will call the ideology of the convention, because that's fascinating as well as that emerges with the speakers list going forward. But very quickly, Carter, for you, does it seem like with with this convention not being televised, with so much more material, perhaps a lot of pre-canned, pre-done video clips, produced stuff, that the focal point is less on the speech by Joe Biden, or is it more on the speech for Joe Biden? What's going to be like the big takeaway now that this is just a very different medium and and, and to that point, message going forward.
1: Well, let's let's phrase it another way. Does it have to be about Joe Biden? And Good I think point. it does. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I think that the pressure needs to be that, so you're producing X number of days, I think it's three days, four days of content, uh, two hours of which are going to be broadcast. And, it, you know, you're going to have all of this content that's going to be put forward. And then um, you need to uh, get some of it to go viral and some of it to jump each day. The, the, the remaining the, the, the feeling that we must have at the end of it at you know in a week after or two weeks after is that that was a great moment for Joe Biden. Um, it can't be. Oh, do you remember the cons? You know who spoke at the twenty sixteen uh, uh, Democratic convention? They were unbelievable, unbelievably memorable. They were po- possibly more memorable than Hillary Clinton herself. Um, with, I mean, powerful messaging. I thought they were spectacular. And how they were attacked afterwards became a bigger story. This you need to craft this convention so that the biggest story exiting the convention isn't Harris, for example. The biggest story is exiting this convention can't be AOC deciding to bring the liberal wing of the of the Democratic caucus. The the biggest story of this convention needs to be Joe Biden nailed it, and and that is that's going to be the success or failure of this particular nightmare of a convention.
0: Corey, I like Carter's question. What does that storyline have to be leaving that convention at the end of next week?
1: I
2: don't think it needs to be very much. It, we talk a lot about convention bumps, but um, they tend to be pretty. You know, they disappear. They they go away very quickly. They're ephemeral. And um, and really, all he needs to do is is put together a credible and competent show. It's um, it's not as though. And I go back to the format is not going to be his friend here. So I think really swinging for the fences is is maybe not the right play here. And and I'd be curious. What your two thoughts are but this might be a time for solid singles and doubles because i do not believe a home run is within his he's not going to have a day that will live in infamy because pearl harbor wasn't bombed like there's just not going to be that hook and so i think we've just got to accept that this convention is not going to be like it can't be compared to previous conventions and say wow his convention speech was the amongst the great ending convention speeches It's got to be something different. And the more you can change it and the less you can be compared to those previous speeches, I think the better off you'll be. Now, one thing that I've been meaning to say here, uh, Zane, you said something really interesting. You talked about, like, Kamala Harris getting the edge for 2024. That's that, you know... That That's like a one-term president, right? That's – well, because, of course, Joe Biden's not going to run at 82. I think we all accept that. Yep. He is a very old man. So in many ways, uh, maybe what he needs to do is just make sure people don't walk away thinking, holy shit, Joe Biden is 78. That might be a win for the Democratic Convention.
1: You obviously I, didn't see the, the video of him riding a bicycle, which even Zane can't do. Actually, so- okay
2: – so I was I was making fun of that video. I said the bar is so low, he's riding a bicycle, and then Gordon Ramsay is is that No, it was Simon, his, Cowell. Simon, Simon Cowell.
1: Simon Cowell broke his back another mean
2: British guy, broke his back and uh, and <laughs> then I thought, a- Okay, I guess maybe there is a difficulty level to that. Shit.
0: I want to talk okay. about two things very quickly. You know, the theme of this convention that the Democrats have put together is uniting America. But it seems like it should have been uniting their party, because what's emerging, at least from this this social Democrat class of the party, which is now, let's be totally candid, bigger in size than it was in 16, more powerful than it was in 16, getting more powerful every day, perhaps even pushing the Biden policy to be the most progressive that we are going to see from a presidential candidate. Uh, But we're seeing that AOC, for example, gets a chance to speak, but she gets a chance to speak for 60 seconds. That is actually how long she gets. Andrew Yang felt like he wasn't invited, uh, and actually complained about it on Twitter. And then he got invited today. Uh, and you got people like Bloomberg and Kasich and other people. So there's been a lot of criticism that this is almost a centrist hoedown. Carter, to your other point, or from our last segment where you said that the social democrats or the liberals within the Democratic Party were getting smarter about uh, their place and not trying to pick at everything as as a hill to die on. Should the convention be one of those things that they? Continue to fight or continue to complain and grapple about going forward. What do you think?
1: No, I mean I think that the the time for fighting is when you're in, you know you're you're t- dealing with a speaker and trying to figure out legislation that's going to be passed. Uh, fighting for your Green New Deal, fighting for uh, legisl- you know the Medicare for All idea. Um, you're not going to win that at the convention. Th- th- that's not the place that you're going to walk away with everybody agreeing that you're going to get your policy initiatives forward. Uh, what you need to do is be is be Ah, uh, good soldiers, and ensure that you're not the excuse for a Biden loss. Um, you need to make sure that you're you're all there, uh, and and ultimately, uh, winning the Senate, winning the House, and and winning uh, uh, the presidency. That that's, you know, we we have seen what happens when you say, well, they're both bad, right? Hillary and, and Trump were the, the the exact same. You know, Susan Sarandon suggested that perhaps it would be better to have Trump. Where the fuck are you, Susan? Where are you? Like, is this what you wanted? Is this what you expected? Fuck you, Susan. Like this, this needs to be realized. As, as uh, yeah, sometimes the the worst is the worst. Um, so, you know, get on get on board, and and if you want to fight for change afterwards, fight for change afterwards.
0: I think we've got another contender for the episode title. Uh, Corey, same question to you, but a phrase in a different way. Let's say you're advising the Justice Democrats right now, right? The leading social Democrat wing within the the Democratic Party. Uh, they see that they're kind of shut out in this centrist hoedown of a convention. What are you advising to them right now?
2: Well, uh, Stephen's exactly right. You don't want to be blamed down the road for, for Joe Biden losing if Joe Biden loses. And so that is going to create a bit of a, a whip, right? You're, you're not going to want to get out of line. But I think there's a there's almost the improv opportunity for the for the the left of the Democrats. The yes and this is a great start, but we are gonna push further and and to run almost a parallel, more aggressive policy strain uh, in conjunction with the convention. Because you gotta keep in mind, the convention's not a real place. It's going to be online. And frankly, the centrist democrats are not as strong in that space as as the more progressive wing of the party is. So you do have a lot of opportunity to to kind of consume the conversation and and if done in an artful fashion you can make it less about undermining joe biden and more about almost throwing a shot across the bow and saying like hey listen like we're here for you but like you you're on this much rope and um and and, it, and, and we're gonna keep trying to push this agenda further farther faster
0: okay let's move it on to our final segment overrated or underrated okay guys here's our first one steven are you ready i'm going to you first. Okay, I think I'm. I ready, got, it, yeah, I, I I got a thought. I give up. a visual Art.
1: signal. I give a visual signal and an audio medium. It was, that's yeah, good. no,
0: that's no, good. It's it's you're you're a pro at this. Yeah, <laughs> Steven, everything considered, everything that we've talked about, the first one kind of a gimme, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Conventions overrated or underrated?
1: Overrated. I mean. The, the 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 bumps that used to come. I mean, back in the day when you were trying to figure out who the candidate was going to be, that would be pretty interesting. But there's really nothing that comes out of these conventions. You don't. You get the vice presidential nominee uh, before the convention. You're not surprised in any way, shape, or form. They're trying to produce them as four-day commercials that have some sort of length that lasts beyond the actual convention, um, which is good. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. I I, I would do the same thing, but. It's not like uh, the bumps last as long as they could, uh, and it's not like the outcome of the election is going to be determined in the next three weeks.
0: Corey, same question to you. You know, I'd be remiss, by the way, if I didn't mention that conventions in Canada, very different beast, right? Uh, Have perhaps different different, mechanical purposes. But let's talk about the scope of the United States. Conventions, overrated, underrated?
2: I think they're rated about right. I think they are overrated amongst the political class, certainly They are given way too much ink and way too much oxygen by uh, writers and pundits. But when you think about the public as a whole, they're not consumed with them and they check in and they are an opportunity to define narratives. And I will tell you... uh, Donald Trump you can run the tape on this one but Donald Trump's convention speech in 2016 was the first time I thought oh shit this guy could win like this message will sell with some people his his order speech he was not delivered particularly well but especially when I read it in advance and you guys will recall we were all on Canada's national broadcaster talking about this yeah like it was uh um it was a moment where you sort of looked at it and you said oh shit he, he might he might actually have a line of attack that's going to be pretty pretty good here and so so all of this testing of lines all of this narrative crafting in the background really comes to a head at the convention and from this point on it's um obviously people still react to it but 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 this is the moment where the curtain comes back on all of that stuff and yes they've 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 field tested a bunch of the pieces ahead of time but all to say, it's not like they don't matter. They are still a bit of a starting pistol for the U.S. presidential season. And I think that they are an opportunity for people to turn on primetime television and see what the argument that is being pitched to the nation is. Uh, so I'm not going to call them overrated. Uh, not with the public as a whole. Um, with the pundit class, certainly. Uh, too much conversation. But but they're, they're still a pretty big deal. Corey, I'm going back to you. So
0: it, this next one is contextual to 2020. The utility of the VP
2: pick in 2020, overrated or underrated? Um, I I think relative to previous years, underrated. Relative to how much people are talking about how underrated they've been, you know, overrated. So just to give you like the most meta answer. But look, <laughs> I mean, you, this is, these are old candidates, right? Trump is 74. Biden will be 78 by the time if he's sworn in. Um, that's that's pretty. That, that's getting up there. You know, that's that's passing life expectancy. And, you know, 82, it like it, it is not unreasonable, and it is not even mean to say Joe Biden could easily die before he finishes the first term. So you, you are, in many senses, uh, looking at a potential president with your VP pick, too. Uh, more so just demographically than ever before, no matter who wins.
0: Yeah, actuarily as well. Yeah. Uh, Carter, uh, overrated, underrated, the utility of the 2020 VP pick.
1: Uh, underrated I mean I think that uh, you know tr- Trump continues to 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 run around and I mean it, there's a real possibility that if Trump was elected um, re-elected I guess that that he won't have the house uh, you know the Democrats control it right now and he won't have the Senate um, and if you lose the Senate and you still have uh, the odd, uh, Republican who who actually favors the United States instead of uh, their party, um, there could be additional impeachment. I mean, this this could be the first time in 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 a long time that uh, whichever candidate wins, um, there's a more than reasonable chance that their their vice presidential pick uh, will be the next. You know, will will. Be the president before their term is over, um, so that makes this uh, an underrated selection period uh, for them, and that's why the musing about Trump changing his his pick is is fascinating. So, uh, and maybe that's for a different day, but uh, I'm I think it's underrated,
0: Corey. Uh, actually, Carter, I'm going to go to you on this one, which is the last one on the overrated, underrated. Uh, 538 released a model very silently on their website uh, this week saying Trump has a 29% chance of winning the Electoral College. Just to remind people what his chances were by 538 in 2016 29%. Carter, that model getting released, overrated, underrated? What do you think?
1: I just, they're, they're totally overrated. I just hate them. Um, you know, I hated the the stupid, uh, what was the New York Times when the needle, the needle we were all watching on election night. I, I remember the three of us chatting back and forth uh, in disbelief as we were watching everything unfold, except Corey, who's like, I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> Fuck you, Corey. Um, so this, this is a, a. Why do we need to know how the story ends? Why do we always flip to the back page of the book? Why can't we just let this unfold over the next 85 days? Why must we predict Uh, rather than just simply say that the polls reflect? Um, The polls are not predictive. They are reflective. And I know I'm the only one I'm I'm going to I'm just bashing my head against the wall when I say it. But there you go. Corey, the
0: 538 model saying Trump has a 29 percent chance of winning the Electoral College overrated, underrated.
2: Um. Well, it's important that we understand what they're saying. So you talked about 29%. That was the chances that 538 gave Trump on election day last time. The 29% that, that Trump has right now is based on, on, on prediction. Frankly, it's based on this idea that polls tighten, based on economic fundamentals, and all of these other things dragging it towards another race. Uh, last go around... 538 had something called the now cast like if the election was called today what would it be which i I noticed they've quietly retired and that would show a very different result i was seeing some of some of their explanation of their model on it and it it basically it's like biden wins 97 times out of 100 or something like that very different results because biden does have a a rather significant lead um i do wonder if this isn't a bit of a uh an overcorrect by 538 and and who could who could blame them but they're definitely trying to emphasize the 29 percent and and the fact that they never said that it was a sure thing that hillary clinton would win but they've they've gotten rid of these metrics that show biden's definitely got it they've definitely emphasized the idea that this could still be open up and i and i wonder if that's not just a bit of ptsd about how much abuse they got last time i mean frankly they said there was a three in ten chance that uh, trump would win and trump won go to the casino like we had this conversation last time this is that's not a crazy bet to make, but, um, uh, the Nate cones of the world at, at, the New York times with the, the needle shooting from sure thing to n- middle to not yeah. a sure thing at all. He's going to, that was, that kind of really gave, uh, the Stephen Carter's of the world ample reason to abuse these aggregators. But I do think there's still some value in it because so much of the analysis that goes into that prediction is available to us. You can open up their methodology. You can see all of those polls, and uh you know as sophisticated readers of this information i do find they're useful they tell us how this race is relative to other times but but you know you got to accept that that splashy 29 percent that's clickbaity that's a bit of hedge and that's um and that's ultimately that's an end product and if we want to be sophisticated readers of this we should go to go to what they're building it out of uh so i do think it's it's overrated but not dramatically
0: the words of kevin durant going after the blog boys and the aggregators Corey. that's only for you i hope you understood that reference i don't think anyone else really would but there you are look at that well done we got another episode in in the bag Corey didn't even have to open up his second beer that is you the people for this week and we'll see you next time